Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over coffee. coffee. All right, guys. So today we have with us a very special guest. We have with us Dr. Sarah Gutman. So Dr. Gutman is an assistant professor of OBGYN at the University of Pennsylvania, and she will be joining us today uh, to talk about telemedicine abortion and self-managed abortion. So welcome, Dr. Gutman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Dr. Gutman. And we're so thrilled to have you here to talk about this subject specifically, just because it is in the news and it is something that I think, um, regardless of where folks are in their training or in their practice, there's a lot of interest in this subject. Um, So we're so thrilled to have you here. What are you going to talk to us about today? What are our learning objectives? Yeah, absolutely. So my hope is that by the end of this podcast, I'd love for your listeners to know how to select and counsel appropriate medical candidates for telemedicine abortion. I'd like for them to understand the difference between telemedicine abortion and a self-managed abortion, and to be familiar with the safety and efficacy data behind both telemedicine abortion and self-managed abortion. Um, And just as a little disclaimer, I'm going to talk about these eligibility and recommended diagnostic tests or labs based on medical evidence, not the individual state restrictions. And unfortunately, as we all know, state abortion restrictions vary widely and are not particularly based on evidence. So please be sure that you know your state's laws to protect your patients and yourselves. Um, And just to recognize that while I'm going to be talking about the most frequently used medication regimens and processes, there are other options out there that I won't have time to cover all of them. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have resources, of course, posted on our website. Um, Before we get started, um, Sarah, do you want to kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about like your training and what you're going to be doing as an attending? Yeah, absolutely. So I graduated just this past June from a fellowship in complex family planning. Um, And before that, I was a resident uh, also at the University of Pennsylvania. So I've become a University of Pennsylvania lifer. Um, I will be continuing to practice here both as a generalist and as a complex family planning specialist. Oh, that's awesome. Philadelphia is fantastic, as Faye knows for sure. Um, (laughs) Though I'm a little far away, but it's nice and sticky and humid over there, I'm sure, for the summer. Um, I miss that kind of weather. So, (laughs) But anyways, let's move on to our content today. Um, So to start off, let's just lay the scene. Like, What exactly is telemedicine abortion? Sure. So telemedicine abortion is the provision of a medication abortion using telemedicine services. So that typically is fully remote, but it can involve some degree of in-person contact for parts of the process. And it's all done under the supervision of a medical provider. And who exactly are appropriate candidates for telemedicine abortion, Sarah? Yeah. So while this part can vary based on protocol, typically uh, eligibility criteria has included pregnancy less than 10 weeks of gestation. Patients should not have any contraindications to mifepristone or mesoprostol, and they should have the ability to receive medications, and in particular, mifepristone and mesoprostol by mail. Got it. You know, I guess during residency, um, certainly I was used to like being in our family planning clinic and things, but I guess Faye and I, we graduated at the time where the pandemic was starting. And so I don't think I've actually ever participated in a telemedicine abortion visit. Um, yeah. What are the steps involved with this, if you will? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really good point that COVID-19 actually increased the use of telemedicine for all sorts of medicine, but in particular telemedicine abortion as well. Um, so the, the consult 
or the whole process, typically it starts with an initial consult. Um, there is the receipt of medication, some sort of follow-up um, and evaluation of whether or not the abortion was complete. Um, so to go a, a little more in, in detail about each of those steps, the initial consult that can include confirming the pregnancy dating, talking to patients about their medical history, uh, any risk factors, talking to them about how medication should be used and what their expectations are for the abortion process. So in terms of um, uh, what the initial consult can include, patients should be certain of their LMP within a week. Um, we typically advise that they anticipate taking their first dose of mifepristone at less than 77 days gestation. Um, we will evaluate for symptoms or risk factors of an ectopic pregnancy. So those can include asking patients about vaginal bleeding, if they have any pelvic pain, a prior history of an ectopic, if they're currently using an IUD or a prior, have had a prior tubal surgery. Um, and just sort of interestingly, the rate of ectopic pregnancy among patients who are seeking an abortion is actually lower than the general population. So between 1.5 to 6 per 1,000 pregnancies compared to about 20 per thousand pregnancies among all pregnant people. Um, we want to ensure that patients have no contraindications for medication abortion. Um, and we want to make sure that we that counsel them about when they need to seek help. So that can include if they have heavy bleeding, that's soaking more than two pads per hour for more than two hours, if they're passing large blood clots, such as something that's larger than the size of a lemon, or if they have any symptoms of blood loss, including feeling dizzy or feeling lightheaded. Thanks so much, Sarah. Can you talk a little bit about any testing like labs or ultrasounds that have to be done in person? As I mentioned earlier, individual protocols for telemedicine abortion can vary. Some include in-person components such as ultrasounds to confirm dating or lab work, including a CBC to evaluate for anemia and a type and screen to confirm that patients are Rh negative. There are protocols that don't require any lab work or ultrasound called no-test telemedicine abortion. The Society of Family Planning recently released clinical guidance that states that RH testing and ROGAM administration are not required prior to 12 weeks gestation for patients undergoing a spontaneous medication or uterine aspiration abortion. This is based on growing evidence that fetal red blood cell exposures at these gestational ages are extremely low and appear to be well below the threshold needed to cause maternal RH sensitization. Studies addressing test versus no-test telemedicine abortion have found no difference in total rates of complications um, or completion, but there is some evidence that no-test protocols can result in higher rates of unplanned clinical encounters. Um, Sarah, can you talk a little bit about the medications, first of all, that you prescribe, but also how do patients get the medications? Yeah, so medication abortion, I know that we've talked a little bit on the podcast in the past about what the regimens are, but just as a reminder... The two medications that we use are mifepristone and misoprostol. And mifepristone is taken orally as a one-time 200 milligram dose. And for most people, that's just going to be a, a one-time tab that they that they swallow. Um, misoprostol, it can be used in a couple different ways. Patients can use it vaginally, sublingually, or buccally. And that's given initially as 800 micrograms with the option to repeat a dose if needed. Um, patients are informed to take that within 48 hours of taking the mifepristone, um, often around 24 hours after taking the mifepristone. And we can consider a second dose if they are at a higher gestational age, such as over 63 days, or if they hadn't experienced any vaginal bleeding within the first 24 hours of the process. Um, patients typically get this medication by mail. 
um, if they're using a telemedicine abortion. Uh, sometimes it can be that they have their consults uh, through telemedicine abortion and then they come in to pick up their medications at a clinic. Um, but a lot of models just mail the medications to patients directly. Kind of working through that a little bit more, Dr. Kipman, you know, one of the things I can recall certainly is seeing patients for follow-up um, after a medication abortion is completed when we were doing everything in person once upon a time. Um, I imagine though that probably is going to work differently for a telemedicine visit. Yeah, this is this is an, um, an area that we actually have a lot of data that's come out in the last couple of years, that there are different ways to do follow-up that are less burdensome on patients. Um, so the two ways we typically ensure an abortion has been completed is through assessing patient symptoms, and we can also use a home urine pregnancy test. So that allows this part to be also remote. Um, patients are, are can be evaluated over the phone, a text message, uh, a video chat, and symptoms are assessed. And a big question to ask is just, does the patient feel like they passed their pregnancy? Um, if they say yes, then the next step is typically to take a urine pregnancy test at home. And that's about four to six weeks following the, the um, abortion process. Um, if the pregnancy test at that time is still positive, that would be a reason to bring the patient in for an additional evaluation. Um, but most patients can complete this whole process just remotely. So you talked a little bit about the evidence behind uh, this process. Can Let's go through that a little bit. So what is the evidence behind telemedicine abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been some big studies, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic, looking at the telemedicine abortion process and how effective it is. And so the efficacy is very high. So efficacy meaning how many abortions are completed without patients needing to come in for a procedure. And that's about 95%. Um, and that is comparable to traditional medication abortion where everything is done in person in the clinic. Um, complications are also really rare. So only around 6% of patients in a lot of these studies had to visit an ER and urgent care center related to their abortion. And even lower is the number of patients who had a serious adverse, adverse event, and that's less than 1%. Um, so hospitalizations, blood transfusions, rates of infection are all way less than 1%. Oh, that's amazing. And I think it's awesome that we have such new and encouraging data about the safety of telemedicine abortion. I want to pivot now um, because also in the news and kind of hearing around our community more frequently is the idea of self-managed abortion. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly self-managed abortion is and how that's different than like what we just talked about in the form of telemedicine abortion? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is sort of a frequent uh, source of confusion, particularly if you're just looking within lay media. Um, so self-managed abortion, it can also be referred to as a self-sourced medication abortion. Um, but if you if you look at how the Society of Family Planning defines it, for example, it's any action that's taken to end a pregnancy outside of the formal healthcare system. So that can include self-sourcing these medications, misoprostone and or misoprostol, taking herbs or botanicals, ingesting a toxic substance, or using physical methods. So there's a lot of different ways that people self-manage their abortions. Um, historically, people who feared criminalization or weren't able to access abortion turned to unsafe or invasive methods of self-managing their abortion. So if you think of like the abortion scene of dirty dancing and how the, the sign of a coat hanger as a sign of an unsafe abortion, 
Um, a lot of people think of that when you hear the word self-managed abortion. Um, however, increased access to medications such as mifepristone and misoprostol, and in particular misoprostol, has made self-managed abortion much safer and much more effective. I also just want to point out that there's a lot of reasons that somebody might choose to self-manage an abortion aside from just being unable to access it. And that can include personal privacy, feeling uncomfortable with available medical services, and sort of your own personal safety. Uh, so let's dive into that a little bit further. Um, Dr. Gutman, what are the components of a self-managed abortion? Yeah, so really similar to a telemedicine abortion, a self-managed abortion includes thinking about eligibility or for a patient thinking or any person thinking about if this is the right choice for them, um, administration of a medication and management of the process, and then assessing whether the abortion was complete. And all of these actions are taken without the formal guidance of a healthcare provider. Um, people who self-manage their medication abortion should be able to estimate their gestational age, thinking of their last menstrual period and be aware of their cycle regularity and if they've had any recent contraceptive use or anything that may make it more difficult for them to, to know exactly how far into the pregnancy they are. Um, there are a lot of clinical resources online, so including through the Reproductive Health Access Project, Doctors Without Borders, and Aid Access for patients who are considering self-managed abortion. The WHO actually recommends mifepristone followed by misoprostol, but if mifepristone is not accessible, as it is not in many places around the world, misoprostol can be used alone. Um, typically, 800 micrograms is used vaginally, sublingually, or buccally, and that can be repeated every three hours or up to three doses until pregnancy expulsion occurs. How common exactly is self-managed abortion? So it's more common than a lot of people would think. Actually, a recent cross-sectional study suggested that about 7% of individuals in the United States attempt self-managed abortion at some point in their lifetime. And this is likely going to grow over the next few years due to increased restrictions on abortion access. As people who are not as familiar with self-managed abortion, we might be a little bit uncomfortable with a patient um, going about the abortion by themselves. So what is the safety and efficacy data for this? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's actually very reassuring um, from what we can what we can tell. So, with the caveat that data is limited um, for many reasons, it is it is difficult to study something that's outside the healthcare sector, obviously. Um, but we do have some data available, and we can also extrapolate from the telemedicine abortion models that have the lowest amount of supervision. So, like no touch telemedicine abortions, for example. Um, from those studies, we know that self managed abortion using mifepristone and misoprostol is likely as safe and effective as a medication abortion within the clinical setting. So there was a, a meta-analysis of a mesoprostol alone regimen that was used at under 91 days of gestation and found a 6.8 ongoing pregnancy rate. So pretty low and close to that 95% um, ability to complete the medication, complete the abortion with medications alone rate from um, telemedicine abortion studies. And serious adverse events, again, from the data we have available, are rare, happening less than 1% of the time. Now, you mentioned a little while ago that patients may choose self-managed abortion for a variety of reasons. Um, I guess one question that I have kind of coming out of that, too, is how do we as clinicians support patients who ultimately choose self-managed abortion, or if they feel like they have no choice and self-managed abortion is just what they feel like they have access to? 
Yeah, it's it's a really important thing for all of us, no matter what your specialty is, to be thinking about. Um, so when people are criminalized for abortion, it's often due to a healthcare provider reporting them to the police, um, which is uh, something that's, I think, difficult to think about, is that a lot of these people are being turned in by the same providers they've gone to to seek help. Um, so I think it's really important to stress that currently there are no mandated reporting laws for healthcare providers. So if you are seeing a patient in an emergency room setting, in a triage setting, and this patient uh, is suspected of self-managing an abortion, there is no legal uh, reason that a provider needs to report them to some sort of authority. Um, it is important to note that people of color and low-income individuals are the most likely to be targeted and to be disproportionately criminalized for self-managing their own abortion care. Um, so it is also a, a racial and social justice issue. Um, there are legal help options available for patients who are concerned about uh, criminalization, and that includes organizations such as If, When, How, who are available um, online, and they have a phone number to call for patients who are seeking sort of information about a criminalization in their states. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming onto our podcast and talking about this really important topic. Do you want to kind of give us a few salient points that our listeners can take away from this episode? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, just in summary, I think some things I would love for your listeners to keep in mind are that telemedicine abortion is the provision of medication abortion through telehealth under a healthcare provider supervision. And in contrast, self-managed abortion is an action taken outside of the formal healthcare setting to end a pregnancy. However, both telemedicine abortion and self-managed abortion, particularly using mifepristone and mesoprostol, are remarkably safe and effective options for ending a pregnancy. Um, lots of protocols vary, but patients receiving telemedicine abortion should be at or below 10 weeks of gestation, should not have any risk factors or symptoms concerning for an ectopic pregnancy, and should not typically have any contraindications for taking mifepristone or mesoprostol. Um, patients should monitor their vaginal bleeding and cramping at home and plan on uh, assessing their own symptoms and taking a home pregnancy test in about four to six weeks to confirm completion of the abortion. Um, most importantly, and something I really want to drive home, is that there are no laws mandating that healthcare providers report patients for suspected self-managed abortion. And if patients are concerned about criminalization, there are legal resources available, such as if, when, and how. Super. Well, and I just want to close out the podcast by saying thank you again, Dr. Gutman. And you've supplied us with some awesome resources um, from SFP as well as the literature um, describing more about the evidence for self-managed abortion as well as telemedicine abortion. So for our listeners, if you're interested in more in-depth analysis of the evidence, head to our website. Thanks again. Thank you so much. All right. So I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Google, Spotify, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on social media on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee, send us some love, and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes and resources for all of our episodes as well as this episode on our website, as well as the Rosh Review question of the week. That's at www.creogsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, 
a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, want to say hi or get in touch with Dr. Goodman or our prior guests, email us, craigsworkcoffee at gmail.com.